Fasting is a physiological state when the body still has labile reserves. There is no pill, potion, powder product. There's no magic. These are ancient practices. Isn't another word for fasting starving myself? And starvation is very uh, dangerous and will result in death. The patients we fast for 40 days are still in the fasting state. We do not go to starvation. Now, there are certain people that you don't put through this fast. There's many people that would not be good candidates for long-term fasting. What have you found over the last 36 years? Even the same patient, one fast to another fast can be entirely different. 36 years you've been doing this, how much of this stuff do you apply to your own life? A whole plant food SOS free diet that's free of meat, fish, fowl, eggs, stir fries, oil, salt, and sugar. And that's the diet I've eaten every day since I started this experiment. You've been um, on the I, same diet for 46 years? I have so far. I'm 42 years old and I look at my skin and I'm looking at your skin. You look like a baby. You don't look 61 years old. That's insane to be thinking about that. What are you going to have for Thanksgiving? I mean, what happens to the turkey? Honestly, once people adapt, they really don't miss the greasy, fatty, slimy, dead, decaying, flesh processed foods that make other people feel so compromised. I hope you're happy with yourself because you ruined everyone's Thanksgiving. You got this fat turkey sitting there and are you going to be thinking about Dr. Allen? And it is really difficult to live healthy in our society today because the society is designed to give you what you want, not necessarily what you need. My guest today is the author of the book called The Pleasure Trap, as well as his expertise is helping people who are stuck in self-destructive cycles. What a thing to be able to help, right? If you've got any kind of self-destructive cycles, hopefully we're going to be able to fix that today. That is Dr. Alan Goldhammer. Dr. Alan Goldhammer, thank you for being a guest on Valuetainment. My pleasure. So look, I mean, I've read a lot of books on, you know, diet and, and fasting. And, you know, I got my CFO in the office here. He's all about fasting. I got Kai over here is going on a 46-hour fast now. You broke it already. He broke it. He said he's going to try to do 48 hours. He broke it at 44 hours. Everybody in our office is about fasting except this guy. So, but I'm open to it and I'm learning about it. We had a couple other friends here on talking about this guest as well. So it's good to have you on. But you take it to a whole different level. You don't say a 12-hour fast or a 24-hour fast or a 48-hour fast. You go all the way down to a 40-hour fast, and you've done this with nearly 20,000 people. So how did you get about thinking of wanting to do 40-hour fast? And tell us a little bit about your background on how you came up with, about with this philosophy. Well, you know, actually, it's, it's actually 40 days of fasting at the extreme. So, you know. Did I say 40 hours? You did. No, but, no it's 40 days. 40 it's 40 days. days. Yeah. Well, you know, Moses, David, Elijah, and Jesus said to have fasted for as long as 40 days, and, and certainly several hundred of our patients as well. You know, there's really two, two kinds of fasting that people are talking about today. One is intermittent fasting, which is uh, what your colleagues there are, are actively engaging in. And the fact is, everybody intermittent fasts to a certain degree. You know, you, you eat your last meal, whatever time that is, and then you go to sleep. And when you wake up in the morning, you break that fast with something we call breakfast or breakfast. And so the question is, what's the ideal period of time uh, for that intermittent fasting period to be? In our practice, we encourage patients to uh, fast every day for 16 hours so that they have an eight-hour feeding window. And what that means practically is that you um, stop eating at least three hours before your normal bedtime, and then you defer your uh, morning meal until you've had a period of around 16 hours of fasting. And it's thought that that cumulative benefit from intermittent fasting over long periods of time may have some uh, significant health uh, benefits. 
Um, in our practice, we have another type of fasting that we utilize, which is long-term water-only fasting. And this is fasting that's done under medical supervision in a controlled setting where people, patients go from anywhere from five to 40 days. So although intermittent fasting can be done safely by virtually everybody and maybe a healthy practice for everybody, long-term water-only fasting does need to be in a, done in a controlled setting in order to ensure that it's safe and effective. So there's a history exam laboratory monitoring, medical management that's done. And that's how we're able to do this safely and effectively. And we have done this over 20,000 times with patients over the past 36 years. So we have a lot of experience and it's used mostly at helping people overcome uh, specific health problems. Now, there are certain people that you don't put through this fast. And I think it's five criteria, if you don't mind sharing that with the audience. Well, yeah, certainly um, there's many people that would not be good candidates for long-term fasting, unlike intermittent fasting, which can be done by virtually everybody. Um, long-term fasting, you have to actually have the appropriate uh, reserves capacity uh, and adaptive uh, situation in order to be able to safely adjust to it. There's also patients, for example, that are on medications, uh, medications that can't be arbitrarily discontinued without serious consequences wouldn't be candidates for water-only fasting. Water fasting is done uh, uh, when patients are stable off their medications. Patients that have problems with kidney disease or cardiac instability or have other contraindications to fasting uh, wouldn't be good candidates. And actually, people that are afraid of fasting uh, probably are not good candidates for fasting. Fear itself is a pretty expensive emotional response. And so that's why it's important for us to educate people about fasting safety and efficacy before we uh, try to get them to undergo this process. Now, you said 36 years, over 20,000 people. Uh, what have you learned after going through 20,000? And is it still new findings that you're getting? Or have you pretty much realized what works, what doesn't work, what results we're getting, what people go through after day one, day two, day three, day four, day five? What is the biggest challenge when you hit a wall? You know how it's kind of like when you're running the 26.2 mile. I, I bet there's probably got to be a wall, people, who maybe multiple walls. What have you found over the last 36 years? Yeah, well, one of the really interesting things and exciting things about using fasting is that it's really different every time you use it because the people that I are bet. fasting are different. And even the same patient, one fast to another fast can be entirely different. Uh, one thing I have learned is that if you do good preparation before fasting and you are very careful about selecting appropriate patients for fasting, it uh, is a whole lot less stressful because you can have very predictable uh, results with certain conditions. Uh, other situations may be less predictable. So we get really good at cherry picking out the people we expect to have really good results. And we focus on those conditions and those patients that are going to make us look good. Well, and you're saying that right up front. So you're not even trying to uh, do the impossible. You're just making sure you have certain set of criterias that you get the best result. You focus on those folks. Yeah, you know, the fact is it looks like what we're doing sometimes looks miraculous. And of course, it's not yeah. at all, because uh, all we're doing is getting the body to do what it does best, and that's heal itself when you get out of the way. We actually don't do anything when you think about it, other than carefully select and monitor patients to go through this very natural process. And what's interesting, and what I've learned in response to your question, is that the people that respond the best to fasting are the patients that have problems that were brought about by dietary excess. 
So, you know, when you think about it, it's not shocking that conditions like obesity and cardiovascular disease, including high blood pressure, type two diabetes, autoimmune diseases, and conditions like lymphoma, these conditions we know from experience are made worse by poor dietary choices. It's not shocking that they would get well faster with fasting than they would perhaps in other circumstances, because the reason they're sick to begin with is because they haven't taken uh, the ability to control what they're putting in their mouth and they're developing diseases of dietary excess. These diseases used to be called the diseases of kings because it was the wealthy elite kings that used to get these conditions. Now they've become ubiquitous because even poor people in our modern uh, world are living as only kings used to live in the past, that is eating highly concentrated, highly refined foods. What, what do you mean by these diseases are named after kings? Can you name them? Well, no, it's, for example, cardiovascular disease and high blood pressure used to be very rare. The only people that used to develop cardiovascular disease, coronary artery disease, were, were the wealthy elite that could afford to eat like we all eat today. Uh, you know, in, 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 in the world of our ancient ancestors, getting enough to eat and not getting eaten was the imperative of life. In fact, most humans, uh, according to the anthropologists, never lived to reproduce. They never passed on their genes. It was only the rare people that survived long enough to pass on those genes. And those were our ancestors. The people that didn't make it were, you know, what we call losers. They didn't, they're not your ancestors. Your ancestors are the winners. We're the end result of a thousand generations of successful survival and reproduction. We're the, the piece de resistance. And the problem is our brains that allowed us to do that were uh, designed, evolved in an environment of scarcity. And now we've changed the environment because humans are so innovative and so creative, we've been able to change our environment. And now we live in an environment of abundance. And as a consequence of those changes, our brain doesn't serve us well unless we become very conscious of the vulnerability to the pleasure trap. That's very deep. So now you're saying 90% is, uh, you, you, you pretty much lock onto the people that are the ideal candidates for you to work on, not the impossible cases, what is an ideal candidate to go on a potential 10, 20, 30, even a 40-day fast? So I find what uh, appropriately motivated patients have better long-term success. And the most effective motivation in my experience are pain, debility, and fear of death. So we tend to see a lot of people that are kind of, they call us True North Health Center, the last resort. Because many of the people, they've tried all the pills and potions, powders, the surgeries, all the magic bullets, all the easy fixes, and now they have to get down and dirty and do the hard work. And it is really difficult to live healthy in, in our society today because the society is designed to give you what you want, not necessarily what you need. And what we want is to live uh, without having to limit any of our behaviors. And what we need is to figure out a way to escape the dietary pleasure trap and actually give the body a chance to heal itself. How do you do that? Uh, what we do is education. So we teach people about the fact that health results from healthful living. And from our viewpoint, healthful living involves diet, sleep, and exercise. So we teach people how to make sure they prioritize their sleep, that they get appropriate activity, and that they control what they put in their mouth. And from our viewpoint, that diet is a whole plant food diet that's SOS free. And as you know, SOS is the international symbol of danger. It also stands for chemicals that we add to food that fool the satiety mechanisms in our brain, lead to systematic overeating, and lead to the metabolic syndrome that's in, uh, epidemic today. And that metabolic syndrome is responsible for contributing to the diabetes, the high blood pressure, the autoimmune diseases, and some forms of cancer. 
So when people are educated about that, they can make a decision to make, you know, make sure they're sleeping, exercising, eating properly. Some people, that's not enough. They need a little extra help. And that's where we have uh, an inpatient facility where people can come in and, and live in a controlled setting so that they can go through fasting if necessary safely. They can make the dietary changes and they can get educated about what it's going to take to actually get well. And once people experience getting well, sometimes they're motivated to comply. What does O stand for in SOS? Oil. So it's salt, oil, and sugar. Those right. are the chemicals that we put in the food that make us fat, sick, and miserable. So those are the words, salts, oil, and sugar. Yeah, so these are not actually food, but they're fractionated food byproducts that we put into the food to stimulate the dopamine in our brain. Got, got it. So you were talking about, you know, healthy diet, healthy uh, uh, sleep, healthy exercise, and, and, you know, when you look at these things, you look at, you know, in bodybuilding, they'll say 80% of bodybuilding is diet, 20% is actually training because you got to eat right. And if you don't eat right, there's no way in the world you can compete because 80% is diet, right? How, mu how much of us staying healthy has to do with, if you were to rank them, yeah. diet, sleep, exercise, sex, how much of a healthy living has to do with those four things? So the, the fact is that we know that a lot of uh, health is involved in things you don't have control over. And genetics are a dominant component in that. But of the things that you can do something about, it's my estimation that about 80% of the effect size is from what you put in your mouth. And the balance comes from your sleep, your activity, and the psychological variables, which certainly would include your interpersonal relations and all the things that go along with that. The reality, though, is you can take an individual and uh, limit their exercise, you can, you can limit their sleep, or you can limit their diet, any one of which can compromise their health. Um, if you want to get and keep people healthy, you have to really control all three. You, oh, so you're not even putting one ahead of the other one? What I'm saying is that the largest effect size is in 80 fact- 80% is diet. Is diet, but yeah. the fact is that if you compromise sleep, you compromise health. If you compromise, uh, if you get inadequate activity, you'll still eventually compromise health. Interesting. Uh, so you, in, in other words, you are putting diet ahead of the other two. If you were to only do one, you are putting one ahead of the other two. Of the things that we have to implement in people, probably 80% of it uh, is involved in controlling what people put in their mouth. Uh, got it. So pleasure trap, you know, what inspired you want to write this book? I mean, obviously it's done very well. I'm looking at the reviews. Uh, what, what inspired you want to write this book? Well, you know, we'd been in practice a long time before we started writing the pleasure trap. And the idea was to try to explain how it was these patients that we were seeing get well were actually getting well, trying to come up with a, an explanation that made sense that was consistent with our experience uh, and the facts as, as we could determine them. And so, you know, in our mind, the pleasure trap, that is the artificial stimulation of dopamine in your brain, uh, that dopamine is what's associated with pleasure. The more dopamine, the more pleasure. The more dopamine, the better the food tastes, the, more, the better the experience. Uh, is perceived. The reason why your brain gives you dopamine is to reinforce behaviors that favor survival and reproduction. So it's not surprising that the only natural normal stimulants of dopamine are food and sex. Food and sex are the only natural normal intense stimulants of dopamine, as you'd expect, because if you didn't engage in enough feeding behavior, you wouldn't survive. If you didn't engage in enough sexual behavior, you wouldn't survive. And so it, it's, it's logical that the body would, the brain would reward the body by engaging in these uh, positive behaviors. The problem was humans got really clever 
And we learned to short circuit this very natural system with the use of certain chemicals. And one of the most obvious are drugs, alcohol, cocaine, uh, uh, methamphetamines. These chemicals all stimulate dopamine production and make people feel good. The problem is it's an, it's an unnatural stimulation and so it can lead to addiction. I mean, that's the hallmark of addiction where you're having to do something to continue not only to feel good, but to avoid feeling very bad, you know, the withdrawal effect. And the same thing happens when you add these chemicals into the diet. They taste really good. They make foods taste good because they result in dopamine stimulation in the brain, just like that drugs do. But it's an artificial stimulation and you can literally develop an addiction, if you will, uh, to the artificial stimulation of these chemicals. And now you have to keep eating these chemicals to avoid feeling very bad. And people don't like to think of themselves as addicts because they're eating a sugar, salt, and oil-rich diet. But the reality is when they try to stop it, it's very difficult. And that's why today two-thirds of people are overweight or obese. You know, the majority of people are developing these chronic degenerative diseases. And people are dying um, and becoming debilitated, which is maybe even a bigger issue, years before um, they pass. You know, life expectancy up until recently had continued to increase. The last few years, it's actually starting to decrease. And even perhaps more important or urgent to people than life expectancy, that is how long they're going to live on average, is healthy life expectancy, how well they're going to live when they're alive. The reality is 9.6 years of debility is average now. So people are not living a, a good life and then having a good death where they go to bed and and, and don't wake up, they're spending years or decades unable to talk or move, lying in nursing home beds, waiting for people to come and change their diaper because they've had strokes or heart attacks or preventable debilitating illnesses. And that's what we're interested in helping our patients prevent. We know they're not gonna live forever. Look, you have 109 billion modern humans that have been born on the planet. There's about 7.7 .7 billion of us alive today, but we only have good documentation of five people living past 117. You're not gonna live forever. You have a one in 20 billion chance of living past 117 currently. So you know you're not living forever, but what you don't wanna do is give up what could be the richest, most valuable years of your life, the last 10 or 20 years of your life. Uh, give them up essentially because of short-term pleasure-seeking self-indulgent behavior that leads you into becoming debilitated unnecessarily. Yeah, we want people to live their full life potential yeah. and take advantage of that. that. That that's powerful. Let me ask you: SOS, salt, oil, sugar, versus cocaine, pot, ecstasy, Vicodin, heroin. Special. I mean, you can go on with all the other uh, addictions that people: alcohol, cigarettes, whatever else we want to add to that. What is more addicting, SOS or all the other drugs? Well, the, the other drugs are more powerful, and so they're more, uh, it's, it's easier to get addicted. Uh, the, that process is more intense. Uh, but the SOS is much more insidious because at least when people are snorting cocaine or shooting heroin, uh, they're usually not in denial of the fact that they're utilizing a drug that has negative consequences. They may not be able to choose to stop or control it easily, but they're not uh, deluded into thinking that there's not a problem there. Most smokers know the smoking is going to kill them. It's a problem. Um, with, with the salt, oil, and sugar, people think this is a normal thing, that everybody eats salt, oil, and sugar, that it's normal to be overweight, uh, to be obese, to develop. Everybody has heart disease and diabetes. and it's just an, So it's, in some ways, it's more insidious, even though it's certainly not as powerful as some of the, the drugs are. Uh, and it works on the same neurochemi neurochemical cascade of the same pathways. And so it's not that uh, sugar is as bad as cocaine, it's not. Uh, but over the long run, it can be even more uh, uh, devastating in the sense that 
um, you don't have to uh, take drugs, but you do have to eat. And if you don't understand the difference between a health-promoting diet and a conventional diet, it's, it's even worse than that because we're teaching people they need to eat meat, fish, fowl, eggs, dairy products, that everybody needs milk. There's all kinds of forces at play convincing people that if they don't use these animal-based products or these highly processed foods, they're going to be defi deficient in things. They're, they're actually going to develop problems. People literally worry about adopting a healthier whole plant food diet because they think they're going to be missing out on some criti critical issue. And that's part, in part because we've done a really effective job marketing and advertising these products. So, I mean, you've really got to admire the people that have, you know, uh, sold uh, people uh, this concept that these highly processed fractionated food products are actually necessary and even important to sustain health. doesn't mean it's true, but it's certainly been an effective campaign. We've been convinced, though. I mean, if you think about it, the world's been convinced that it's uh, it's uh, it's it's good. You said you said it was three reasons why people come to you. The, the three types of people you said: pain, fear of death, and debility. What was the other one you and said? Debility. Yeah. Oh, okay. So Got either it. they can't do what they want to do, they they can't they can't tolerate the pain. You know, the pain's or they're, they're for whatever reason they've decided they want to stay alive. M makes sense. I mean, it's, it's a good reason to want to stay alive and maybe see your grandkids grow up and your kids grow up, but the. What, what gets people to a level, from your experience, 36 years, 20,000 plus patients, fasting all the way up to 40 days, uh, uh, what gets people to the point of saying, you know what, Doc, I got to tell you, I know those three things you talked about. Is that the breaking point where somebody says, I'm willing to change and figure out a way to drop some of these SOSs and, and, and change my lifestyle? Is it anything more than those three things that you see where somebody just says, I want to make a change in my life? Um, yeah, I think sometimes their experience of people they know or trust and they see them having had an experience. That's very motivating. Um, so, you know, they know somebody that had problems like they had, and then they, they see them go through what appears to be a relatively straightforward process. You know, you adopt a healthy diet, you get enough rest, you do your exercise, and the body heals itself. And if you want to speed it up, we do this, this fasting business. You know, it's, there, there is no pill, potion, powder, product. There's no magic. These are ancient practices. Uh, like I said, if you, you go to the Bible, you can read about fasting. You know, there's, uh, I think, a hundred thousand plus references to fasting. So this idea of giving the body a chance to unwind itself isn't exactly a new concept. And as far as the diet, you know, what are we talking about? A whole plant food diet free of highly processed food products. You know, we didn't used to average 150 pounds of sugar a year per person. You know, in, in, in the world of ancient ancestors, uh, you know, sugar wasn't, wasn't even existent in a concentrated form like that. And the, and the same thing, salt used to be such a precious commodity that it was used as a means of exchange, you know, worth his salary. Uh, you know, it derives from the fact that, you know, these highly fractionated food products used to be rare, not ubiquitous. We've gotten clever, we've gotten smart, uh, we've got, you know, we're post-industrial revolution, and as a consequence, we've changed our environment, and now we're in deep trouble. Yeah, in one of your interviews, I think you said your brother called you and said, I had a heart attack. <laughs> And, and your reaction to it was not the typical reaction a sibling would have. And maybe if you can uh, sure. unpack your reaction, it'd be very helpful. Well, my brother is five years older than I am. So we grew up together. And, you know, I got involved in this very young. I wanted to be a, a better basketball player because my best friend, Doug Lyle, used to beat me just mercilessly. And I thought, well, you know, I practiced. It didn't do any good. I thought maybe I'd get healthier and that would give me an edge and I would crush him. 
Well, the problem was it failed because he adopted the same diet. And he still, to this day, I'm 61 years old. We go out, we play competitive basketball. He still kicks my rear every time. <laughs> so complete failure. But it got me interested. I started reading and I read these books and they said that doctors that use this approach had the best job in the whole world because the body did all the healing and the patient had to do all the work. And all you had to do as a doctor was take credit for the good results. And I thought, that's the job for me. You know, I got interested in it. And so, uh, you know, started to pursue this. Anyway, my brother, you know, he continued to live more of a conventional lifestyle. Really brilliant guy, but, you know, he ate too much, gained weight, got to the point where his knees were swollen. He couldn't play volleyball anymore, really starting to suffer. And, of course, I would always give him, you know, a hard time. And, yeah, he didn't want to hear about it. At one point, my sister-in-law, his wife gets ill, comes to our facility, does a fast, recovers, avoids surgery, does great, becomes a, adopts a health-promoting diet. He still won't do it. She's wow. having to make two meals. He's making her. She's You're the younger doing, brother. I mean, I don't want to listen to him. doesn't want to listen. Brother. A buddy of his, he's, he's uh, at, one of, at, uh, at, at uh, Boeing. So he's, you know, one of his buddies from Boeing. Actually, unbeknownst to him, comes to our facility, recovers his health, quits smoking, gets, overcomes his blood pressure, gets off the drugs, goes home and starts to tell my brother, you should go to this place, True North. It was really helpful. He said, oh, it's my brother. Won't do it. Finally, I get the call. He's in the hospital. He says, Alan, I've had a heart attack. And I said, well, you survived it. That's wonderful. And he goes, no, no, no. You don't understand. I had a heart attack. I said, I heard you. Best thing that could have happened. Now you're going to have to start to listen. So the, the, the surgeon is telling him he's got to have a, a four-way bypass. And I asked him to talk to the surgeon. The surgeon, he asked the surgeon, if I do this, won't they eventually plug up again? And the surgeon explains, yeah, they will plug up again, but it'll last much longer than if we just do stents and whatever. Anyway, long story short, he checks himself out. He adopts a health-promoting diet and lifestyle. He loses 50 pounds. He avoids the procedure. He's able to get, he's passed his stress test. He's had a great outcome. And now he's, you know, he's adopted the diet and lifestyle. Took me, you know, Took him having a heart attack and me 30 years of nagging, but nonetheless, uh, today he looks fabulous and he's doing really well. It's been a couple of years now. He's back playing volleyball. Everything looks good. Well, I mean, you said you're 61, so that means he's 66. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to, to going out to playing volleyball, doing all—that's great too. At 66 years old, you well, know, especially after he, yeah, more power to him. And, and the reason why I, I wanted to bring up your brother's story is because of you saying the types of people that come to you is pain. Debilitating where they can't do certain things or fear of death, they finally say, "Listen, you know, I may want to do something about my life." Okay, so here's a question for you. You probably get this all the time. So, isn't another word for fasting starving myself? I mean, isn't that the same exact thing? If I'm fasting, you know, you hear these stats where they say the uh, you see these kids that grow up and they're adults and their bones and their joints are so weak because they grew up in a bad parts of town. And their family didn't feed them well. And because of that, they're so, they break down easier. They get hurt easier. If that is something we hear about 20 years later when a kid becomes an adult, why would we fast ourselves? Aren't there certain nutritions that we can't get outside of water? Yeah, that's, of course, a very common idea. The reality is that fasting is a physiological state when the body still has labile reserves. If you keep fasting long enough, eventually you deplete your labile reserves and you enter a process called starvation. And starvation is very uh, dangerous and will result in death. 
so yeah, you, you can't fast a person beyond their reserves. That's one of the things we do when we assess a patient is to determine if they have adequate macro and micronutrient reserves in order to undergo the process. And then we continue to monitor them, including things like potassium and electrolytes, kidney function, et cetera, to make sure that we're still in that window where they're going to get uh, benefit. And so again, everybody fasts. It's a question of how long should they fast. And that's uh, determined by their reserves and their adaptive capacity to adjust to the fasting state. The patients we fast for 40 days are still in the fasting state. We do not go to starvation. Because if you go to starvation, then people would die, and that would really mess up your outcome data. That makes sense. You don't want to be able to say out of your 20,622 people died. It's not a good attitude. No, in fact, we actually have done a fasting safety study where it's been published in peer-reviewed journals looking at this very issue of fasting safety and adverse events. And you know, people that are interested can go, can go to our website and they can download those articles and they can see for themselves uh, exactly what happens in fasting. It's been well testified. And the conclusion is that fasting is in fact a biologically natural, safe and effective experience as long as it's done according to a reasonable protocol. So I might so, mention of the 20,000 patients that we've had come to the center for fasting, 20,000 people that walked in, 20,000 people were able to walk out. We have a very strict rule. If you're able to walk in, you have to be able to walk out. And so far, you know, we've been able to preserve that uh, safety record. That's good stats. Out of your 20,000, how many of them went 40 days? Um, about 5% of the patients are doing the very extreme oh. fasting. The vast majority of fast, uh, fasting patients are fasting between one and three weeks. Oh, they're still going for one week. So during the time of me fasting, what am I taking? What am I eating? Is it just water? Because you hear different things, coffee, you can you have juice, you can have all these other things, apple juice. What's yours? So water fasting is just that, water only. In fact, it's distilled water only, fractionally steamed distilled water. So the only thing they're getting during this fasting experience of five to 40 days is water only. Now there is juice fast and other modified programs that people can do, and they can be very helpful, but they're not water fasting. Water fasting induces a unique biological adaptation that's really unique to water fasting. So for the conditions that we're treating, uh, there's nothing that works quite as well as doing water only fasting. Uh, if, you're, if you're trying to normalize blood pressure, overcome type two diabetes by reducing insulin resistance, uh, break down uh, lymphoma tumors, uh, dealing, dealing with uh, these autoimmune diseases, water fasting is a really unique biological adaptation. Water fasting. So that means for seven days, all I'm having is water. For anywhere from five to 40 days, correct. Anywhere between five to 40 days, all I'm having is water. And so if, if you can walk me through this, you know, day one, what happens? Because, you know, the typical one we hear about is the 18 hour one, you start at six o'clock, you don't eat till lunch, right. 12 o'clock. That's what you hear about 18 right. hour fasting, you know. So what, so what is, is the, the body same process, but in the time? Yeah, it's the same process, but it's going to be ex extended out. Instead of breaking your fast with breakfast, we would continue. Now, in our patients, let's be clear. First, there's review of history exam and laboratory baseline. So we, we know from the history, the physical examination and the laboratory testing, the person is a good candidate that they have the reserves, that they have adequate kidney function, that they've got cardiac stability, that we've gotten them weaned off their medication safely beforehand. And they've done a good lead-in program. So they've eaten fruit, salad, and steamed vegetables only for a couple of days. There's no meat, fish, fowl, eggs, dairy products, oil, salt, sugar, or highly processed foods being used. That makes the transition to fasting much easier. And as I said, they've been stabilized off any medications. Now they start fasting. During the fasting state, we impose uh, a degree of rest. So people can move around. We even have little classes and things that they do, but basically they're not doing vigorous exercise or 
uh, intense, uh, stressful activities. And the reason for that is if you are extending a water fast and you continue to say exercise, what you would do is you'd force the body to, to generate more glucose to provide use for the muscle in the brain. And the only place that it can get that glucose after the glycogen reserves after the first, say, 48 hours is through a process called gluconeogenesis, which is a breakdown of protein. So we don't want to deplete a patient's protein reserves. We want them to burn fat. And what's really exciting is we have actually recently uh, acquired a, a DEXA scanner, and we've been able to do really detailed whole body composition changes. And what we've done in this study that, we've pu that we're publishing is we've been able to show that visceral fat is preferentially mobilized during fasting. Not just fat. Fat is preferentially mobilized, but specifically visceral fat. So, for example, a person might lose 20% of their total body fat during fasting, but they may lose 40 to 60% of their visceral fat. So the body's actually going in and mobilizing this um, the fat that tends to accumulate around the core and in, in the, around the organs that's thought to be most associated with compromised health, it'll mobilize visceral fat first and preferentially, and then it'll mobilize uh, adipose tissue, and then it will preserve protein. So that when you look at the weight that's lost during fasting, let's say a person loses, say, 20 pounds, some of that's fat, some of it's protein, some of it's glycogen, some of it's uh, fiber that was in the gut, some of it's fluids. And then when they come off the fast, they regain weight. But the weight that's regained during recovery is almost exclusively um, protein, water, fiber, and glycogen, and not fat. In fact, the fat loss continues during refeeding. And so what we found with uh, water-only fasting is it's a unique, unique way of mobilizing visceral fat, which helps open up blood vessels, gets rid of the health-compromising components, much more so than, say, going on a high-protein, high-fat, keto-type diet. You know, the fasting-mimicking diets, which can blunt hunger and facilitate weight loss, uh, that may have some short-term benefit, may have some long-term serious consequences. Just like with water fasting, you wouldn't water fast forever. You water fast for a period of time, and then you go back to eating a health-promoting diet. But the net effect on the body is to reverse, to reverse visceral fat, normalize blood pressure. Uh, it reduces insulin resistance, which allows diabetics to normalize their blood sugar levels. It breaks down some of the masses. For example, a person might lose 10% of their body weight, but they won't lose 10% of their tumor. They may lose 50% or 100% of their mass because the body's preferentially mobilizing tissues in inverse proportion to their need. And that's why visceral fat, tumors, growth, other things sometimes go away in fasting. Um, disproportionate to the percentage of weight that the body loses. 36 years you've been doing this. How much of this stuff do you apply to your own life uh, on what you do? So how often are you fasting? What's your diet look like? What's your daily regimen of sleep exercise look like? Well, I decided at 16 that I was going to do a 50-year experiment and adopt this whole plant food diet to see if I could beat Dr. Lyle in basketball. I'm 46 years in. I haven't, I haven't been able to beat him yet. I have a few more years to complete the experiment. But I have adopted a whole plant food SOS-free diet. So I eat, my diet is, you know, we, just what we feed the patients at the center. In fact, that's one of the benefits of working at the True North Health Center. We have excellent food prepared every day. So we have oatmeal and fresh fruit and greens in the morning. We have large salads, steamed vegetables, potatoes, rice, beans, small amounts of nuts and seeds, a whole plant food SOS-free diet that's free of meat, fish, fowl, eggs, dairy products, oil, salt, and sugar. And that's the diet I've eaten every day since I started this experiment. Uh, you know, when I was a teenager. And uh, it seems to be working uh, uh, well for me. You've been um, on the I, same diet for 46 years? I have so far, so far. Well, when's um, your birthday? What month is your birthday? I'm January. 
January be what? 62 in January. January what? 28. 28. Interesting. Wow. So <laughs> as far as, uh, you know, uh, exercise, you know, I, I, I like basketball. So, you know, my uh, routine up until COVID was 10 hours a week of full court basketball uh, uh, with a group of, I must say, much younger uh, gentlemen. And I, 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 that's other than all the deaths and problems, that's really been the hardest thing for me with this current COVID situation is that, you know, public basketball gyms have been closed. It's been a real, uh, what I consider a tragedy. So I've been still playing basketball, but it's not the same when you're playing on your court, you know, and not engaging in the mock work. Familiar with it. Yeah. So, and you know, I've had to resort to treadmill and other things, which, you know, I, aren't as interesting. And as far as fasting, I hate fasting. I do it every year. I do it every night for 16 hours and I do it every year uh, as a, a preventative measure. But the worst part of fasting is you have to rest, you have to take it easy, you can't work, you can't play basketball. So there's definitely a, a price that's paid to do fasting properly. But uh, in addition to 16 hours a day, I do uh, a week or so every year. If, if, if I fast a patient for a week and there's no symptoms and they're healthy, there's no other issues, then usually that's the end of that and we move on. The only reason we go longer is because we're trying to achieve an end goal uh, in terms of, you know, people have health issues that we're trying to normalize. And that's how long do we go? We go however long it takes. If, for example, high blood pressure, we fast for five to 40 days. What determines that? Well, however long it takes to normalize the blood pressure. Now, if we get to 40 days and we still have a problem, we may have to break it, re uh, re somebody, build them back up, and then bring them back and do it again until we get the problem solved. So it's not that every problem solves first pass. Um, but if you look at our data, we had 174 consecutive patients in the study we did on high blood pressure. 174 people were able to normalize blood pressure without medication. And we have the largest effect size that's ever been shown in treating high blood pressure in humans with an average effect size of 60 points in stage three hypertension. So people who started off with blood pressures of 180 or more, average blood pressure drop was 60 points. That's the largest effect that's ever been shown. And we're essentially doing nothing. Water only fasting followed by a whole plant food diet. <laughs> so, so let me recap, by the way, I'm 42 years old and I look at my skin and I'm looking at your skin. You look like a, I'm you take this in a compliment. You look like a baby. You, you, you don't look 61 years old. That's insane to be thinking about that. So you said 10 hours of basketball a week for 46 years. You've been following this diet. And then you, you, you said when you're doing your fast once a year, you don't do the 40 day, you go around one week per year is what you do. And you fast 16 hours every day. That means you're only eating eight hours every day, but that's any day, including Thanksgiving, Christmas, no matter what it is. Every day. Well, we celebrate every day as if it was Thanksgiving and Christmas. We celebrate every day with, uh, you know, wonderful fresh fruits and vegetables, grains, legumes, nuts, and seeds. So every day is a holiday and a celebration for us. We don't reserve certain days of the year where we compromise our health by loading ourselves up with highly concentrated processed foods or other things. So every day, healthy diet, every day, celebration. What are you going to have for Thanksgiving? I mean, what happens to the turkey? Well, yeah, we, we, somebody else will have to have the turkey. But we, you know, on Thanksgiving, we do seasonal rotation with food. So there's things like wild rice and yams and sweet potatoes. And there's, you know, greens and chard. And there's all kinds of wonderful things that rotate with the season. And certainly, if, if you know, some of those uh, Thanksgiving foods, traditional foods can be very health promoting. So there would be no harm in doing those. And honestly, once people adapt to eating a whole plant food diet, they really don't miss the greasy, fatty, slimy, dead, decaying flesh processed foods that make other people feel so compromised. And, you know, what I ask patients to do is think about the long term, not just the short term. 
you know, what you don't want to do is find yourself unable to talk or move lying in that nursing home bed waiting for people to change your diaper. So one of the things they can do is get a little magnet and put an adult diaper up on your refrigerator as a little subtle reminder every time you go in to choose what you're going to eat, you know, how you want the last years of your life to be. You want to be enjoying your grandkids, not asking them to come in and, and you know, and care for you. I hope you're happy with yourself because you ruined everyone's Thanksgiving. But you can have a fabulous Thanksgiving. Just make better choices. <laughs> you got this fat turkey sitting there. <laughs> you cut it. You want to take that one leg and just take that bite like a caveman. And are you going to be thinking about Dr. Allen? Is what, well, what you want to do is first have a big salad, a lot of steamed vegetables, have the potatoes, rice, and beans. If you eat right. enough of that, there's not that much room left for the more processed foods. You, you have not partied with Middle Easterns before because we, we like to break records and we like to really, you know, uh, 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 do things that's never been done before when it comes down to food. But you are making a lot of sense when it comes down to this. So have you ever yourself done a 40 day or no? No, I've never, I've been very fortunate. You know, I got started at 16 years old. I'd never smoked or drank or had a cigarette or a cup of coffee, or I'd never utilized these. Cause you know, you're a young kid, you don't get started on those bad habits. And so I've been fortunate enough that I've never had to do uh, a 40 day fast in order to rebalance. I've had to do sometimes longer fasts. I did one longer fast that was, um, I was playing basketball and I accidentally hit some guy in the mouth with my elbow. So I got a, a basically a human bite wound. Um, and, you know, even though I knew better, instead of stopping and cleaning the wound carefully, I finished the game. We won, by the way. And, but nonetheless, I got a, an infection in my elbow. And human bite infections are not nice. The organisms can be pretty nasty. And so swallow up. And I ended up having to do a, a longer fast in order to get that infection to clear because I was, you know, stubbornly not wanting to use antibiotics in that particular case. Fortunately, healed up, did fine. Uh, but with that exception, I've never really had any problems. I've been so fortunate to get started so young that I haven't had the health uh, issues. And so when I fast for a week, if everything's clinically stable, just like with patients, I'll terminate the fast and move back to healthy eating. And always great relief, relief because when you're fasting, you have to rest. And as I said, I hate that. So how long was that fast with the elbow and the mouth? That took me nine days to clear that okay, uh, infection. It. So, you know, I had nine days of fasting and then a little recovery time after But that. no matter what, you do your seven days every year. Every year I fast for a week, uh, begrudgingly. Is there a specific season? Is there a time of year you do it? Um, yeah, usually it's uh, usually at the, towards the end of the year, November, December, just because the way we do our staffing, it's easier for me to take that time off with less, less, less disruption. I was just waiting I'm, for you to say I do it during Thanksgiving or Christmas. I'm like really extreme. Well, I, I don't do it during Thanksgiving and Christmas. I have to work Thanksgiving and Christmas. A lot of the staff like to have time off for their families. And so my family all work at True North Health. So we all work over the holidays, and that allows a lot of the staff to be able to take off and that with their families. You're a good boss. Just a technical question. Are you LDS or no? Uh, we're not, although we have a lot of uh, LDS patients and we have, uh, you know, I speak a lot uh, to, the, to that, those organizations and those churches because they're, they're very supportive of fasting and the whole idea of diet playing an important role in vegetarian diets and this type of thing. So we, are you, are you, what's your, what's your, is there a denomination you are or, or no? I, I'm Jewish. So I was okay. raised with the K foods, you know, the Kugel, the Kreplach, yeah. the Kanishas, the Blintzes. And the, boy, it wasn't it a shock to my parents when they had to make these changes themselves uh, and give up their own traditional diets because of uh, the need to regain their health. And I was very fortunate that both my mother and my father uh, ended up actively, uh, embracing this style uh, of life and, and did very well. My, uh, my mother actually 
when she was 92 years old, uh, had outlived all 50 of her lifelong friends. And she, she told me that, you know, many wow. of them used to make terrible fun of her because she wouldn't, you know, her son's crazy diet and all that stuff. But at 92, she realized the last of her lifelong friends had passed away and she was alone in terms of her lifelong friendship. And she said to me, she said, Alan, you need to warn your patients that if they're going to adopt these diet and lifestyle habits, make younger friends. <laughs> and she said much younger because, you know, even the people a few years younger, they were still dying and they wow. still couldn't engage. Wisdom. So I warn patients now, make younger friends. It's never too soon to start making younger friends. It's a very good uh, advice that she's giving. I mean, some... Yeah. Some men in their 50s, may, 60s, may even take you that advice in a whole different way. Uh, but, 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 but I heard you made, I heard you made 48 out of 50 shots, I mean, free throw-wise. I mean, that's, that's pretty impressive. That's like Walt Williams' type of uh, statistics. Well, I'll tell you something. I wanted so badly to beat Dr. Lyle that I decided that I couldn't really beat him on the court. He's just too good. So I thought I can beat him in free throws because we know free throw shooting is really just practice. And I shot, you know, 500 free throws a day for six months thinking, okay, I'm going to get this down. I took some coaching. I got some help. And I, you know, casually one day, he hasn't played for like a week, right? And I say, hey, Doug, why don't we have a free throw shooting contest? He says, okay, whatever. So I go out there, 48 out of 50. I'm so pleased with myself thinking, I've got him. I mean, you know, 48 out of 50, you know? He hits 19, misses one, and then he hits 80 in a row. That's and of course, I call him a choke because, you know, if you can hit 99 out of 100, why don't you just hit, just hit the 100, 100 yeah. you know? And uh, so, you know, like I said, what can I do? I'm still working on it. I've never hit 80 in a row in my life. He hits 80 in a row. Well, you do kind of look like Mark Price. So, you, 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 you know, he had a good free throw. I don't know if you remember Mark Price or not. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he was a 92, 94% guy. I think one season he even did 96. Yeah. Okay, so, so we've talked about a lot of different things here with Dice. Let me kind of take you to a different place. You know, I'll go to dinner with friends, and we'll sit there and we'll talk. And they'll say, I follow this diet. I follow that diet. And then, and then the, the, the wives will typically start with what we all ought to do. And then the guys will gladly debate any topic just to debate because we have nothing better to do than debate and see who's right and who's wrong. And then you kind of see, well, no, that's not how I do it. I, you first have to do the right way. You first get the blood. And then after you take your blood, and then when the blood is going to tell you what kind of food you should eat because it's different for A and O and B and C and D and all this technical stuff. And I'm just sitting there saying, oh, this is so complex. And then you look at families. And tell me, tell me what you've seen here with 20,000 people that have come to you. You know, most people take up the religion that their parents had. If your parents are Jewish, you're probably Jewish. If your parents are Christian, you're Christian. If your parents are Republican, you'll typically end up being a Republican. If they're Democrats, you'll be Democrat. Every once in a while, you'll see somebody says, you know what? I don't know if I believe in the person you believe in. I'm going to go do my own research, and then I become something else. So I don't know if I believe in being a Democrat. I want to be a Republican. I want to be a Democrat or whatever it may be, right? But do you see similar trends with that being with how we eat based on how our parents ate? And how often you see that cycle being broken and what causes for that to happen? Yeah, it's worse than that. It's not only, the, you know, what we've been taught, but there, it, you know, diet is a hugely important cultural uh, phenomena. And so if you decide to step outside the norm on diet, uh, it's very disturbing to people. You know, many of them are well-intentioned, misguided people that are genuinely concerned for your well-being. They think if you don't adopt uh, the diet that they uh, adopted, you're going to be, you know, it'll compromise your health. And, 
and traditions. You know, I had a, that experience myself. You know, when I adopted this at 16, my mother was very concerned. I had adopted this, you know, whole plant food diet. And my uncle, who was a physician, actually was invited over. I remember because it was my 16th birthday and she wanted him to talk some sense into me. And he said, uh, oh, you know, don't worry, Phil. These kids go through various diet fads and stuff. And as long as he eats plenty of gefilte fish and, you know, he'll be fine. And I explained to my uncle, I said, no, uncle, it's called being a vegan and, you know, no animal foods at all. He said, it's called being a mishugana. You'll stop it right this minute. Anyway, it's also I decided that, that I decided at that point what career I wanted to pursue. I wanted to get into this alternative medicine. So I told the family I decided on my career choice. And he was really upset. He was screaming and yelling. I thought I was going to witness my first stroke. He said, nobody in this family would go to that kind of a doctor, let alone become that kind of a doctor. He says, better you should be a communist spy. And he's screaming and yelling. And finally, they get rid of him. He goes away. My dad, who's a really serious guy, takes me aside. He says, son, I don't know anything about this alternative medicine business, he says. But anything that makes him that angry and mad, it can't be bad. So you <laughs> stick to your guns and good luck to you. My father, later, when I was in school, I was just coming out of school, began to have transient ischemic attacks. Uh, he had lived a conventional diet, you know, the traditional foods. Um, was having uh, essentially mini strokes, uh, had lost his cognitive capacity where he couldn't remember his grandkids' names. He had to retire from teaching. He was a mess. Comes into the center. We had just started up, undergoes 26 days of fasting, recovers his health. To make a long story short, 20 years later, he helped edit The Pleasure Trap because he had made such a fabulous recovery. So he ended up being a really fabulous outcome um, uh, in terms of, you know, doing much, much better as a consequence of dietary change and, and remained uh, compliant. Interestingly enough, my uncle, who, uh, when I'm in school and we're doing this original work on blood pressure, I'm, ex I'm trying to get him interested in looking at our, our data. He won't look at our data. I says, uncle, there's a blood pressure. They're getting well. He says, they're not getting well. I said, they're getting well. He says, no, they're not getting well. So I've been in practice 50 years. They never get well. He said, no, they're getting well. He says, you don't know how to take blood pressure. Okay. So anyway, he says he won't look at our data until it's published in a peer-reviewed journal. Two months before our article finally comes out, we get it accepted for publication. Two months before, he dies of a massive heart attack. Come on. My mother swore to the day she died, he died just so he wouldn't have to admit he was wrong. <laughs> I think it was the Kugel, the Kreplech, the Knishes, the you know, but who knows? Did he die April of 01? What month did he die? <laughs> because the paper is uh, June of 01, right? When he came out. Is that, is that the time? Wow. Unbelievable. When you think about he, never did, he never did review the data because, you know. I'm sure he did. I mean, they don't have that kind of stuff up there. Yeah, Depends on where he went. But, uh, so, what, but I, I, there's no question. This dietary, when you step outside the dietary norm, you're yeah. going to raise some concerns. And in, in fact, you have to be very careful not to become a social outcast because you're not participating in all the traditional habits. And learn, you know, in our book, The Pleasure Trap, we talk about strategies for going along and getting along and not mm. alienating people yeah. and not shoving your belief systems down their throat, but you know, accepting uh, things as they are and hopefully they respect you enough that they're willing to allow you the indulgence of adopting a health-promoting diet and lifestyle. Uh, who, who sold you on this concept at 16? Um, I actually started reading, and there are books like Herbert Shelton, who were talking about health from healthful living. 
uh, Nathan Pritikin and others that were writing uh, books uh, that were very compelling. You know, they made a lot of sense. But why? Why did you start reading that? Like well, it's because I was trying to beat Doug in basketball. I just was looking for, I was so desperate to be better. I was willing to do anything. Is that I, really I the reason why? Oh, you absolutely. No, I was just totally. That was the total thing that got me sucked in, wanting to beat him. Anything wow. to get an edge. January 28th, very competitive. So do you have any kids or no? I have two children and two grandchildren. In fact, I have a 15-year-old grandson and an 11-year-old granddaughter. My grandson calls me the AO, and I found out it stands for Ancient One. Nice. So, I mean, yeah. You couldn't call worse if you think about it. Yeah. Any of your kids uh, do the fasting as well every year or not? Yep. My, my son, uh, Gar, uh, has been... Uh, 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 been on this program since before he was born, and he actually works at the True North Health Center, so he eats all of his meals at True North Health. So he's a uh, very compliant uh, and uh, probably the most compliant person I've met in the sense that he's been doing this all of his life. So this is a family affair. By the way, I was looking up uh, our buddy here, Kai, sent me an article to look at regarding Angus Barbieri. Okay, I couldn't believe this. I don't know if you know the story of Angus, a Scottish man who fasted. For 382 days, water only, he went from 456 pounds to 180 pounds. He lost 276 pounds fasting for 382 days. I can't even believe it, but he owns a Guinness Book of World Record. How familiar are you with the story of uh, Angus? Well, I don't know Angus, but there is another one in the medical literature that was about 360 days, a very similar story. These are exceptions, though, and these are people that have uh, you know, significant reserves. Uh, the longest we fast patients routinely is 40 days. And the problem is, as you start getting beyond 40 days, you start getting into a more delicate situation that requires even more careful monitoring in order to avoid depletion, particularly electrolytes and micronutrient depletion. So we arbitrarily limit it. There's only been a couple exceptions where we've had to go beyond 40 days just because of the health situation. Uh, and most patients are fasting one to three weeks. Okay, so I'm making a note. Don't try to break Angus's record. No, God, I wouldn't recommend that. Okay, I just want to make a disclaimer to everybody. We got to make it somewhere big here. Do not break Angus's record. We may never see you again. Um, uh, last but not least, before we wrap up here, for bodybuilders, you know, if you're a bodybuilder and one of the things you worry about being a bodybuilder is thinning up too much and losing muscles, you know, and when I talk to a lot of these Mr. Olympia guys, they're friends of mine, you know, uh, fasting, some of them actually, believe it or not, do. You know, yeah. Very few of them do in their own way as they're trying to cut up, preparing for the competition. But, you know, the dizziness comes in and some of these guys take diuretics to suck the water out of their body. And uh, that's definitely not a philosophy you have. But what do you say to people that build muscle and, and they may want to take up this one week to go on it on water, but when you go on it, you could end up losing muscle because you can't lift for those weeks. I know you kind of talked about it a little bit earlier. Yeah. When you said you shouldn't be losing weight because you're losing fat and you should keep your, you will lose weight, but not necessarily muscle. What right. will you say to bodybuilders when it comes on to fasting? Well, there's a couple issues here. Number one, we need to be really clear. What's best for maximum athletic performance isn't always necessarily best for health. So for example, you know, NFL linemen that use anabolic steroids may be bigger and better, but it, you know, they get testicular atrophy and die from heart disease when they're older. So just because it makes you a better performer doesn't necessarily guarantee it's making you healthier. And so uh, the strategies that might maximize uh, bulk for weightlifting aren't necessarily the same strategies that you would use to maximize health. 
Um, second of all, as far as fasting, I think actually quite a few weightlifters do use uh, intermittent and also limited term fasting for the purposes of uh, mobilizing visceral fat. Um, and you can do that. Remember, you don't lose any uh, muscle cells because you, when you fast, you just lose the cytoplasm, some of the material in the, you know, the, the size of the cells get a little bit smaller. Same thing with fat. You don't lose any fat cells. You're losing the juice in the fat cells. When you come off the fast, you will rebuild your muscle cells. You'll pump those back up, but you won't pump your fat cells back up if, in fact, you're eating a calorically appropriate you know, health-promoting diet. And that's one of the things that the study that we're doing is showing is that, in fact, fat loss continues on an appropriate diet, but, but muscle comes back, uh, glycogen comes back etc. So uh, I think that fasting probably does have a, 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 a role there. But uh, the biggest thing for weightlifters is to try to do what they're doing healthfully. And so if, and you can you can do it healthily, but it's not as, as good as if you're injecting steroids as far as the short term gain. So there is a price that's paid for doing it healthfully. So we're not getting endorsement on steroids from you here on this episode. Yeah, I wouldn't recommend steroids. What I would tell you, though, there's been a number of NBA players uh, that have been experimenting with whole plant food diets. And uh, it's been interesting is looking at the effect in terms of especially fourth quarter performance. And there's some uh, data that's, that is out there. I'm not an expert on this, but there's data out there showing that particularly when it comes to endurance measures and others, adopting these healthier plant-based diets may actually reduce injury, uh, short-term injury, uh, speed injury recovery, and also affect long-term endurance. So I think there is some building evidence that athletic performance may be enhanced. Uh, you know, there's some movies out like Game Changers, uh, James Cameron's movie, yeah. uh, that makes a compelling case by some very competitive athletes that you can... Persian bodybuilder. I think it's a Persian or Armenian bodybuilder, a guy named Patrick, who's massive, Game Changer documentary. Had a lot of controversy behind it. Yes. Yeah. Any, any, any big, who's the biggest name that believes in one week fasting, any athletes, that's a very big name. That's done a one week fasting. Anyone, you know, a president, political business, sports. Unfortunately, I don't mention patient names ever. So not I your patient, really not your yeah. patient. I'm talking people that have publicly come out and said it, not your patients. Yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have any lists of people on my, okay. that I would be talking. About. I was hoping you were going to say Donald Trump fasts a week every month. You know, he, you know, takes care of himself, maybe Chris Christie, but uh, we're not. I wouldn't we're not, know anything about it. I okay. really only All pay right. attention to my patients. That's good. Very good. Well, well, we appreciate you. We had a really good time, folks. Uh, if you haven't ordered his book, we're gonna put the link to his book below for everybody to be able to go order the Pleasure Trap. Doctor Allen, thank you so much for being a guest on Valuetainment. I, I would say there's one one thing, if I might just add, if if people have a question about whether they're a good candidate for fasting or fasting might be relevant to them, they can learn a lot about that at our website, or they can call me and we offer a no cost uh, phone conversation if they want to talk about is this something that might be useful to them. I'd be happy to help answer that question for him. Well, next time I suggest when you're doing an interview like this, do it in a way where you have the website on the back so people can see it. You, you may want to think about doing that next time. It just, it just may bring more attention to it. So we're going to put the link below to truenorthhealth.com. We will put the link to the website above the book and you can either the book, order the book or go to visit the uh, the website as well. Again, once again, thank you so much for being a guest on Valley My Team. pleasure. Thanks for having me. Really enjoyed it. Water fasting for 40 days. Would you do it? Would you even go 10 days? He went nine days. He said the average patient goes seven days. What's the longest you've ever gone fasting? I'm curious. Comment below. 
And also, if you enjoyed this interview, I did another interview with Dr. Jason Fung that's in a similar space, slightly different approach he takes. If you've not watched that, click over here. And if you've not subscribed to the channel, please do so. Thanks for watching, everybody. Take care. Bye-bye.